0: Hello and welcome to Sounds Strategic. I am António Sampaio.
1: Hi, I'm Ayan Owens.
0: Today we'll turn to the geopolitical competition between the US and China in Southeast Asia. To get the perspective of countries in the region, we are happy to welcome Aaron Connolly on the show. Aaron is the IISS Research Fellow in Southeast Asian Political Change and Foreign Policy and is based in the IISS Asia office in Singapore. He's leading a new program at the Institute that looks at the international relations of Southeast Asia with a focus on the politics and foreign policy of Indonesia, Myanmar and Malaysia, as well as the roles of the US and Australia in the region. Hi, Aaron. Welcome to the show.
2: Uh, Thanks, Antonio. It's good to talk to both of you.
1: So, Aaron, to start, perhaps we could turn to your reactions to the speech that the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, gave um, on the 21st of July during a, a special address for the double um, Now, the U.S. has tried to define what its policy towards Southeast Asian countries, as well as the Association of Southeast Asian Nations is over the past few years during Trump's first administration, um, during first term uh, but what do you think Esper's speech uh, actually said? How do you think it was noteworthy? And how does it compare to previous remarks?
2: I think, you know, Secretary Esper uh, was trying to lay out a policy about China, but really to an audience that was comprised primarily of China's neighbors. He wasn't really speaking to Beijing. And um, he spoke in particular about uh, sort of networks of partnerships in the region, What he didn't do was speak about the Association of Southeast Asian Nations or ASEAN, which is highly unusual uh, if you compare Secretary Esper's speech on the 21st to speeches that secretaries of defense have given to the Shangri-La Dialogue every year. Uh, Going back to 2010, all of those speeches by his predecessors have mentioned ASEAN and have emphasized the importance of ASEAN centrality and the role it plays in the regional security architecture. Secretary Asper did not mention ASEAN as an institution at all. He did use the acronym three times to refer to the the countries of Southeast Asia, but he wasn't really referring to the institutions. That strikes me as a deliberate shift that seems to be uh, significantly different from previous addresses if we put this one in the same category as those Shangri-La addresses. Um, And I'm not entirely sure what it portends for the Trump administration's policy for Southeast Asia, but I, I think you'd have to say that the Trump administration has had less of a, an Asia policy than it has had a China policy over the last three and a half years. And it, it doesn't have, for instance, an ambassador to ASEAN, which the Obama administration uh, had for six of its eight years. Uh, and the US was actually the first to send an ambassador to the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Um, a number of the ambassadorial posts in ASEAN member states are, are vacant and have been vacant, for instance, here in Singapore since the beginning of his administration. And so while Secretary Esper was very clearly speaking from the national defense strategy that was released in 2018, it seems that, um, you know, that strategy hasn't really been implemented in Southeast Asia, and perhaps the way its authors would have envisioned, Uh, the United States isn't really competing in Southeast Asia, uh, in a way that would uh, be consistent with the strategy laid out in the NDS in 2018.
1: So we've seen within the Trump administration that there's a preference uh, to not go down the multilateral route. Do you think this has something to do with it? Does Trump just prefer bilateral relationships rather than engaging in multilateral fora?
2: I'm not sure this is entirely just a Trump administration phenomenon. Um, Perhaps not mentioning ASEAN at all is a particularly Trump administration uh, approach to multilateralism. Um, but there's been broad frustration in the United States with ASEAN. Um, there is a feeling that ASEAN doesn't stick up for itself in ways that would be in ASEAN's interest, in the, in the member state's interest, and then also in, in the broader region's interests. and a resort toward greater minilateralism. Secretary Asper did not mention the Quad in his speech last week, but he spoke about networks of partnerships that are very similar to the Kind of trilateralism that we've seen in the region uh, and that undergirds the Quad, which is of course Australia, India, Japan, and the United States. Uh, and so this may be indicative of a of a shift toward an interest in more minilateralism as opposed to uh, as opposed to uh, multilateral institutions of long standing that the United States feel haven't done what it would like to see them do.
0: How are countries in the region coping with the pressure to take sides between the U.S. and China in this competition?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. I don't think the United States believes that it's pressuring Southeast Asian states to pick sides. Secretary Asper and broadly, I think the American Foreign Policy Establishment, believes that it's doing what it's doing to give these countries options in the face of Chinese pressure and economic coercion. Southeast Asian states are equally concerned about U.S.-China rivalry as they are about Chinese pressure. And I think that's a difficult uh, perspective for Americans to understand because they, they believe that they're doing this to some extent out of a kind of altruism to give Southeast Asian countries options. Um, but you know, most of these states have been the targets of Chinese coercion and they believe that increased heightened rivalry between the US and China will actually limit their options. Um, and also that it will cost them economically. Uh, during the trade war last year, Uh, Singapore very nearly went into a technical recession as a result of US-China trade tensions. Uh, And for a government that was about to hold an election and which is measured to some extent on economic competence and prosperity, um, that was a very difficult situation that Singaporean leaders felt the United States had put them in.
1: I think you make a really good point, Aaron, and we heard in Secretary Esper's uh, speech yesterday that uh, the only reason that countries move into China's orbit is because of China's coercive measures. And it seems to me that this statement largely disregards the national agency of Southeast Asian countries. So I know it's early days, but how do you think this statement will overall be received by Southeast Asian governments? And what do you think then drives this decision-making with regards to China policies in the region?
2: Well, it's it's always risky for any official to analyze other states' foreign policy choices. Um, It it can tend to be off-putting because it seems paternalistic. Um, And I think that may be the reaction uh, of several Southeast Asian states. I would argue that actually when you look at how Southeast Asian countries are managing U.S.-China rivalry, not a lot of them are moving into China's orbit. You could argue that Cambodia under Hun Sen, uh, that Laos, a very Really weak country um, without a lot of options is in the Chinese orbit. And uh, to a lesser extent than those two, Brunei has moved closer to China over time. But almost every Southeast Asian state, in one way or another, is hedging. Um, They're not balancing, they're not bandwagoning. Uh, Again, with the possible exceptions of Laos, Brunei, and Cambodia, they're really hedging and they're trying to maximize their options. Uh, and, And so the choices that they take that may bring them closer to china in closer economic alignment or geostrategic alignment they view those as temporary choices that are designed to preserve their options to preserve their non-align, non-alignment non-alignment um, and to maximize their strategic autonomy uh, so it's not always because china is uh, seeking to coerce these countries into its orbit uh, that they're taking these decisions some of them they genuinely believe to be in their in their national interests And American policymakers might find more success if, at least rhetorically, they acknowledge that uh, these decisions are uh, taken in in Southeast Asian capitals in ways that many Southeast Asian leaders believe are in their interests.
0: Mm. And how do the approaches of US and China to building these political relations with Southeast Asian countries differ? Of course, both countries claim that political ties to their opponent comes with risks of domestic or foreign policy interference. I mean, there is the um, whole um, cybersecurity and information security with Huawei uh, debate and imperialism, US imperialism. How do Southeast Asian governments view this?
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, Beijing really does demand things of Southeast Asian states, for instance, uh, to take a particular position on the South China Sea disputes, uh, or to take a particular position on Huawei, the uh, telecommunications vendor, of course, responsible for building much of the 5G network in this part of the world. Uh, but the United States also requests Southeast Asian states take specific or make uh, specific policy changes And a lot of times the US requests are more invasive from the perspective of Southeast Asian leaders, particularly authoritarian Southeast Asian leaders, than China's because the US is uh, constantly pushing for greater democracy, uh, more liberalization, both economic and political liberalization. And for some leaders, let's just take Hun Sen in Cambodia. He views acquiescence to those requests as an existential threat to his regime. Whereas Cambodia, On the Gulf of Thailand, um, doesn't have as many interests in, say, the South China Sea. Um, And so there is, I think, a misunderstanding that um, China's coercion is more of an existential threat to Southeast Asia. And it may be a longer term threat to the autonomy of Southeast Asian states. But in the shorter term, for many of these leaders, they've used some of the, the, when they compare what China is asking. Uh, of them and what the United States is asking of them, uh, sometimes they see a greater threat in what the United States is asking of them. Many of the, the people in these countries don't see it that way, right? And there, there's often a difference between elite opinion and popular opinion. Uh, but you know, when it comes to who's making the decisions on foreign policy in Southeast Asia, that's mainly still an elite game.
1: I mean, I thought you asked a really good question in the Q&A session after Secretary Esper's uh, remarks yesterday when it comes to how close those shared values really are between certain countries in Southeast Asia and the United States. And in that sense, I suppose I I question whether building that narrative into uh, an address that is intended to be directed at the region is really that helpful from the U.S. perspective.
2: I, yeah, absolutely. I think you're right, Maya. And I, th- I suspect this is the reason that Secretary Asper tried to dodge the questions. There were ways in which he could have answered the question about shared values that didn't go to domestic political systems. He could have talked about um, you know, the freedom to be able to choose your way in the world free of, of coercion. He could have returned to that theme. Um, and he could have talked about history because while you know Thailand and the Philippines, the United States, two treaty allies in Southeast Asia, are uh, not democracies, not liberal democracies at the moment. The Philippines is still a, a democracy, and Thailand is at least a procedural democracy. But they're certainly not liberal countries. He could have talked about the shared history between the United States and these countries. Uh, so there were ways to, to answer that question. There are ways to craft a narrative about a shared history, um, and 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 then also to say that uh, despite the divergence in political systems over the last several years, um, he you know speaks to his counterparts about. Uh, values and about democracy, and that the United States continues to uh, engage on these questions and on governance questions as well. It might be a little bit more difficult for the Trump administration to make that argument, given everything that is going on in the United States these days. Uh, But there were ways to answer that question that would have perhaps been a little bit smoother and didn't necessarily put Southeast Asian countries offside.
1: That's really interesting. And Secretary Esper spent a significant amount of time, I think, uh, in his speech, really trying to back up US policies towards the region with the actions that the government has taken. And I remember in last year's Shangri-La Dialogue, um, acting Secretary of Defense, uh, Mr. Shanahan, was criticized or at least questioned in the Q&A session um, as to whether U.S. actions really did match up with its words. Um, And so I think that that was Esper tried to address that criticism in his speech. And I wonder whether you think that's successful. I mean. He mentioned that the number of freedom of navigation operations phone ops in the South China Sea in 2019 was the greatest in the history of the 40 year long phone ops program. And he said that this year the U.S. will keep uh, up the pace. But do you think these types of examples that that U.S. actions like phone ops actually deter Chinese aggression? Is this how countries in Southeast Asia want the U.S. to engage?
2: The, The phone ops program has really changed in purpose over the last several years. When the FONOPS program began in the 1980s, it was, I I believe in 1979, uh, it was really meant to uh, be a legal instrument because under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, unless states assert their rights, they risk losing them under customary international law. And so it was meant to prevent states from saying, well, the United States Navy and no other Navy has sailed near this island in a long time. So therefore, under customary international law, we can prevent those sorts of transits. And the United States has conducted fawn-ups, challenging claims by every claimant in the South China Sea for at least going back to 2005. So uh, I, I should say every claimant to the South China Sea, it hasn't always conducted uh, challenges of Chinese claims in the South China Sea during the second half of the Obama administration. But under pressure from Republicans in the Senate during Obama's second term, it became more about signaling resolve and commitment to the region. And that has continued under uh, President Trump. And and so, you know, this is a reality. This is now a, a purpose that these operations serve. And a number of analysts have argued that You know, FONOPS are a necessary part of U.S. strategy, but they're not a sufficient part of U.S. strategy. The region is looking for other signs of commitment to the region as well. Um, And it's not necessarily seeing those. Secretary Esper in a speech last week mentioned, uh, you know, co-procuring striker vehicles with the Royal Thai Army. Um, That is not enough. Um, You know, these are relatively limited Measures, and when you compare what the United States is doing, for instance, in Europe, or its foreign military sales, foreign military assistance to the to countries in the Middle East, what's going on in Southeast Asia is still far less than you know what the Pentagon is contributing to uh, security assistance in the Middle East and in, in Eastern Europe.
0: And, of course, another um, component of U.S. Um, foreign policy these days is the inconsistency of the Trump administration uh, towards some of its allies and, and traditional partners. Um, how are Southeast Asian states uh, coping with the, the past few years of the Trump administration? Um, has, has this inconsistency made them reluctant to rely on U.S. pledges of support, for instance? It is
2: exacerbated a pre-existing concern. There has always been a concern in Southeast Asia that the United States is a global power and could easily be distracted by events or obligations elsewhere in the world, uh, quite often in the Middle East, uh, since 2014 in Europe, and a concern that uh, commitments that it makes uh, or gestures that it makes in this region won't be followed up Uh, in the future with with concrete action. Add to that the inconstancy of Donald Trump himself as an individual um, possessing the power of the presidency and the threats that he has made against security allies to which the U.S. has obligations. It has created a dynamic in which Southeast Asian countries are very reluctant to be seen as too close to the United States because they don't know if the president might uh, condemn that relationship in a tweet in the future. Uh, and they don't know if a future U.S. president uh, might fail to live up to commitments that the Trump administration has made in the region. So there's real reluctance to rely upon the United States uh, security guarantees or security assistance in this region because it's not clear if it will continue or if it will potentially be held hostage by an angry president uh, in, in Donald Trump. So it's exacerbated a pre preexisting uh, issue.
1: Can I just follow up? And this might be a cheeky question that you don't we don't know the answer to yet. But do we have any indication of what a potential Biden administration's policy towards Southeast Asia would be?
2: I, I think it's pretty clear. Uh, Vice President Biden has uh, emphasized the role of alliances you know, throughout his career. Uh, but then also in the course of this campaign, it's, it seems clear that there would be a focus on alliances Uh, But I think more broadly, there is a change in the foreign policy discourse in Washington, D.C. about Asia, particularly on the democratic side that has been driven by reporting on a lot of the human rights abuses that have occurred in the region, and in particular in Xinjiang, and most recently with the national security law in Hong Kong. And those uh, abuses have turned what was uh, previously a, a democratic foreign policy community that was much more uh, to, to sim- oversimplify things realist and focused on power to one that is more focused on values now. Uh, and so I think that there will be a greater focus on values going forward from any, had there been uh, any, had any of the Democrats uh, won the nomination and if any of them were to be elected president. Uh, but it, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a little bit too soon to tell. There's, uh, you know, a lot of this will depend upon what happens in the next few months during the last months of President Trump's turn Uh, term, he's likely to be increasingly unpredictable during those months. And that may change facts on the ground in a way that a potential Biden administration has to respond to.
1: And maybe turning to one country in particular, um, the Philippines has suspended the U.S. Visiting Forces Agreement earlier this year, uh, which is one of the U.S.'s uh, cornerstone defense agreements in the region. What do you think Duterte wants? Is this uh, simply, uh, can we put this down to uh, Duterte's own style of politics? Is this a longer standing issue or does this signal some sort of trend and pushback and um, agenda setting on the part of Southeast Asian governments themselves?
2: You know, every country in Southeast Asia is different, but Rodrigo Duterte is a very particular individual. And when he thinks about his relationship with the United States, he draws upon a background in Mindanao that's very different from many other Filipino leaders. Uh, And he has long expressed animosity toward the United States. Um, And so that is a a personal view of his that he brings to the presidency. Uh, But there is also um, an apprehension in Philippine foreign policy circles, going back to the 2012 Scarborough Shoal incident, when Chinese vessels and Filipino vessels faced off over this islet that's Really, only about 150 miles from Manila. Um, And the U.S. sought to intervene and broker a a compromise. uh, And ultimately, uh, Chinese vessels have been occupying that island for the last uh, eight years. And so there is a reluctance to rely on U.S. security guarantees. And some of President Duterte's officials have sought to renegotiate the terms of the alliance to ensure greater American commitment to the Philippines. So it's unclear whether or not this was merely a a fit of peak on the part of President Duterte or whether this was a more strategic action intended to uh, negotiate a better agreement uh, or whether some officials were using uh, President Duterte's peak for that reason. But uh, at any rate, the the cancellation of the visiting forces agreement has now been suspended. And so uh, there is a six month reprieve uh, and it will be up to the Biden administration if President Biden is elected in November to negotiate the new terms of that VFA. I would just add here that it it seems the United States uh, has also agreed to back down on some of the pressure that it was applying to Manila with regard to uh, its extrajudicial killings of uh, drug users and traffickers um, or alleged drug users and traffickers. Uh, It had canceled the visa of President Duterte's former chief of police, who is now a Philippine senator. It has now agreed to reinstate that visa So it appears that President Duterte successfully used the cancellation of this agreement to push back on U.S. human rights pressure. Uh, And, you know, again, it'll be up to, uh, you know, potential Biden administration to determine, you know, how it, it threads the needle on that debate between values and interests in the Philippines.
1: So whilst we focus a lot on the geopolitical rivalry between the US and China and how this plays out in Southeast Asian countries, um, of course, we should pay attention to political developments that are happening in these countries themselves. And I was wondering whether you could give our listeners some sort of insight as to um, whether Malaysia will uh, turn to elections in, in the near future.
2: What, you know, the Malaysian government is hanging on by a very thin thread. It has probably a two vote majority in parliament. And uh, it came to power, its critics argue, through the back door. The king appointed this government in March uh, when the previous prime minister, Mahathir Mohamed resigned. The opposition is fractured, but so is the government. Uh, And so it's going to be very difficult for them to hold this thin majority together for the next three years that in this term of parliament. So I think they are likely to go to an election toward the end of this year or the beginning of next. Uh, and that'll be a really challenging campaign for both sides to run. Uh, the opposition was united at the last election really by the determination to take down Najib Razak, the prime minister at the time, who had been implicated in the 1MDB scandal. It doesn't have that glue to hold them together anymore. And as a result, they've had difficulty even agreeing on who would become prime minister um, if they were awarded government again. And then when it comes to the current government, uh, this is now an almost all Malay coalition. um, And that is a a new situation for Malaysia. It will be interesting to see whether or not they resort to the politics of race and religion, as opposed to the politics of good governance uh, in order to to, to try to win election. Because when it comes to economic policy matters, uh, they're in a difficult spot. They need to speak to populist demands that are coming from their base, uh, which is dealing with cost of living concerns and certainly with the pandemic as well. But at the same time, Malaysia is deeply in debt as a result of the one MTB scandal, and it needs to find a way to raise revenues if it's going to meet the, the demands of its citizens going forward and escape the middle income trap. So it'll be a very interesting uh, election to watch if it does come uh, towards the end of this year or early next, as, as we think it's likely to do.
0: Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for our listeners as well. And please subscribe to Sound Strategic for more in-depth discussions like this. And to keep up to date with the uh, latest trends in international security and armed conflict, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. See you next time.